Our second lesson is a continuation of the first. It's the concluding part of the Gospel according to John. It begins with verse 15 of the 21st chapter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Amen. Now then, we've been studying in the Gospel of John on Sunday morning. We realize that the purpose for which the Gospel of John was written was told us right at the concluding verse, uh, verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. John had said that many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, he had a mass of material, and he had to select what he put forward, but he was putting it forward for a purpose. It was organized and designed to create faith in us. Faith in us in believing that Jesus was who he claimed to be, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. That's the key to the whole of the Gospel of John. Many scholars think that John intended that this should have concluded his record of the life of our Lord Jesus and that chapter 21 forms a sort of epilogue to it. Now then, this may be so. Perhaps there were two reasons uh, for the adding of chapter 21. One reason might have been to show us how Peter was reinstated. 
And the other reason might have been to explain why it was that after Peter's martyrdom, John, the beloved apostle, should be still living. Perhaps that's the reason. At any rate, there are many lessons that the Lord is going to teach us from this particular passage. We can group it together around three uh, headings, feeding, forgiving, and foretelling. The other day I intended to call this first part of the sermon the first prayer breakfast, because that's really what it amounted to. We do not know the precise date on which this appearance of our Lord occurred. It was some day during that period after his resurrection and prior to Pentecost. We do know that Jesus had appeared to Mary, and John told us all about that very vividly in the 20th chapter, Mary Magdalene there at the sepulcher and to the other women. We know that he had also sent special word that they were to meet him in Galilee. We know also that they had difficulty in recognizing the risen Christ. Mary supposed him to have been the gardener. She couldn't recognize him. The two who were walking on the day of the resurrection toward Emmaus had Jesus join them and speak to them about the scriptures, and yet they didn't know who he was. And then, as we'll read in just a few minutes, we'll see that they don't know Jesus when he appears on the shore here. Now, there is something tremendous about these resurrection occurrences. You, and, and I know that I have, as a little boy, been taught that Jesus rose from the dead from the time I was a little child. But now you have to remember that these first Christians, it took them a while for them to be able to take this in. They came to believe it with all of their hearts, but it staggered their imagination at first. And God really dealt with them. So they were frightened by Jesus when he appeared. Jesus is right now in this room. He is here amongst us. You don't see him with these eyes, but he is here. And I think that his appearance is here during this period between that resurrection morning and the day of Pentecost are meant to show us something that's mysterious and wonderful about his nearness. After he had, where, where did he go in, his, in this body, this resurrection body, where did, it, where did he go? prior to the time of the final ascension. Well, I believe that he ascended to heaven. I believe that he appeared many times. He wasn't limited to time and space. His body could go through doors that were locked, and he simply appeared there faster than thought. He could be with us here and with others in another place. He is with us here this morning. He is with people who are worshiping uh, perhaps in airplanes in the skies or ships at sea, or if there were people on the moon who had gone up there as astronauts, he could be there with them too. He is not limited by time or space. And so our Lord Jesus appears to the disciples, seven of them, and seven, by the way, is a great number for witnesses. Seven witnesses are to verify a great truth. It's the perfect number. There were seven of them assembled together. Simon Peter had become restless, and so he gathered together a group of six others, and they set out on a fishing expedition. 
Now, there are many people who fault Peter for going fishing. I can't in good conscience do that. I I like to go fishing too much. Uh, Peter went fishing because he had to eat. And the rest of them had to eat as well. That's the way they made their living was fishing. I don't believe that this intends to convey to us that they were going to forsake any loyalty to Jesus and go back to fishing forever. But they had to meet the needs of their families. There were seven families represented here. And so they went fishing. Now they went to a place that was loaded with memories. They went to the Sea of Galilee. It was here on this sea that Jesus had first called them when he saw them washing their nets. And you remember it was here on the slopes of this sea that the Lord Jesus spoke his first great parable, the parable of the sower and the soils, the four kinds of hearers who heard the word of God and the four responses that were often given. And you remember that it was on this same sea that he stilled the storm immediately. This sea was filled with memories for them. I'm sure that Peter could recall that time when Jesus had granted the first miraculous catch of fishes, when he had told them to launch out the boat into the deep, and they had, and how they had caught all of those fish at one time, and Peter had fallen at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. It was there by that sea that Jesus had told Peter, They call you Simon because you're like a reed blowing back and forth in the wind. You're like sand that shifts around with the currents that drive it. But I'm going to change you from Simon. I'm going to change you to Petros. I'm going to change you to rock. And upon this rock, people like you who come to believe, I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it, he was later to tell him. Well, I'm so thankful that he did this because so often those of us who are believers are tempted to think that if we, uh, you know, we want to be a sort of bionic Christian. I'm talking with Al Stamberg, one of our wonderful people here at Montreat, one of our deacons. The other day we were talking about the things of the Lord. We're talking about how, how sometimes we do not accept ourselves. We don't want to be me. We want to be an instant Moses or an instant Paul. Uh, we talk with young people that way. And you see the six million dollar man with his bionic eye who can see through everything. With his ability to run at a tremendous speed and his great powerful arm. We wonder why can't we sort of put the bionic Christian together? They got the bionic woman now. They'll have the bionic boy or girl next. But, uh, but we want a bionic Christian, a sort of super Christian. And we don't want to accept ourselves. You remember reading in the Peanuts comic strip, little Charlie Brown, how he said that he didn't want to be like Abraham Lincoln. He had enough trouble just being Charlie Brown. Well, well, we don't want to accept ourselves. I told a dear old friend of mine the other day when I'd made a terrible blunder and it cost me a ton of money. I'm exaggerating again. <laughs> I told him, I said, you know, I'm dumb. And he said, did you ever do this before? And I said, no. 
And he said, then don't say you're dumb. You made a mistake. Now, if you do it again, you're dumb. <laughs> well, well now, that, that helped me. So we have to learn to accept ourselves and our limitations, but we need to realize what the Lord can do for us. And so I'm so thankful that he tells us about Peter and about his calling. First of all, Jesus selected some people who would work. These were people who worked at a trade, and when he first called them, they were not the people who were the great theologians of the time. But they were fisher folk, old smelly fishermen. And yet Jesus selected them and called them to come and follow him from washing their necks. And they had spent three memorable years with him, and they had seen all of those tremendous things that Jesus had done, signs such as had never been seen since the world was created that made them to know that the one with whom they had walked was God incarnate in human flesh. And oh, how wonderful it is to know that the God of the universe, who is scaled down in human flesh, in the body of the Lord Jesus, that he loves and cares for those who try and fail. And so Peter, remembering remembering that he had denied his Lord three times bitterly after his Lord had prophesied that, that he would do so. You remember Jesus had said, one of you will betray me. And John makes a note of that in this last chapter. That night that Jesus said that, and the disciples looked at each other and said, Lord, is it I? Well, only Peter would boldly state Lord, everyone else here might betray you. I can't speak for John, and I certainly can't speak for Thomas, and I don't know what Andrew's thinking, and I don't know what Matthew's up to, but Lord, there's one person you can always count on. I'm your team leader. I'm the quarterback. I'm with the disciples, and though everyone else betray you, I will follow you to prison, and I will follow you to death. And Jesus, Jesus knew that Peter loved him, but he also knew that Peter had talked beyond what he would be able to do. So Jesus told him that before the cock would crow in the morning, three times he would deny him. And you know what took place. How the Lord Jesus had agonized in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then suddenly there came the flickering torches, and that band of temple policemen had come out from Caiaphas's to arrest Jesus. And you remember how one of them had caught hold to reach out and take hold of Jesus, and Peter flashed out his sword and slashed away at this man. Now he meant to keep his bargain with Jesus, his promise to Jesus that he would never forsake him, that he would go with him to prison and to death. And so Peter was very bold and brave, and he yanked out the sword and he slashed at that guy, and he intended to kill him too. If you think about that sword and the fact that it cut off his ear, you can imagine what it would have done if it had hit him in the middle of the head. Peter meant business. But the Lord rebuked him for what he had done. He was courageous, but he did the wrong thing. Did you ever do the wrong thing <laughs> when you meant well, you did the wrong thing? Boy, when I think of all the mutilated ears that I've hacked up over the years. <laughs> um, when I meant well, I wanted to defend the Lord. 
and I slashed away. And the Lord had to say, put that thing up. Fixed it up. Fixed up Malchus. That man must have become a Christian. They wouldn't have written his name down, I don't think. He, if they tell us who he was. Malchus, he put his ear back together. Jesus fixed him, made him well. And then he told Peter an interesting thing. He said, didn't you know that I could call on my heavenly Father and he would immediately send me 12 legions of angels? He forgot about the angels. I don't need your sword. You let me do things in my way and you let the Lord God reign. So he corrected Peter, and Peter, stunned by this rebuke, trailed along all the way to Caiaphas' courtyard. And didn't you remember the series of lies that took place there? How someone says, why, you were also one of them. And Peter says, huh, what did you say? And then next someone says, why, you're with them. And then Peter says, no, I was not. And then someone finally told him, you are one of his disciples. He had that Galilean accent, the country guttural accent in then Peter curses and swears and uses his old fisherman's oath and says that he may be damned if he ever knew who Jesus was. And then immediately the cock crows. And we are told by Luke that the Lord turned and looked on Peter. And he went out in the night weeping bitterly. And I'm sure we would have had another Judas on our hands who would have hanged himself had it not been for John. John must have lived near where Peter lived, and they both had the same trade, we know that. In some way, somehow, they must have gotten together that night. John tells us this story here. He must have loved Peter very greatly. We know that when Jesus rose from the dead, that special word was sent to tell his disciples and Peter that he was risen from the dead. And we know that Jesus made a private appearance to Peter, and we don't know what they said. And then the days go by, and then this morning comes when they have gone out to try to catch some fish, and they had spent this cold, gray, despondent night of throwing the net and hauling it in, and throwing the net and hauling it in, throwing the net and hauling it in, and nothing all night long. I remember going there and looking at the Sea of Galilee, doing what all the tourists do, go and eat a little fish uh, at a little restaurant there on the side. And I looked at the, the, the Sea of Galilee, that lake, 12 and a half miles uh, long and six and a half miles wide. And that beautiful lake, I love the lake. I had the impulse to go take dynamite and blow up all the churches around there because they build a church over everything. But uh, they couldn't build one over the lake. And it looked, it, it, it was beautiful, and I, I enjoyed seeing the lake and the hillsides around it. Well, Jesus goes there to, to this, these disciples are there on that lake, and Jesus comes to the shore, and they'd toiled, toiled all night and hadn't caught anything. And then in the early morning hours, they saw through the mists of the dawn someone there on the beach. And, you know, sound travels across water. And across this lake they could hear the voice calling to them. And the King James Version says, Children, have you caught any, have you caught any meat? Or have you any meat? Well, that's not a good translation. What he said was, You caught anything, boys? That's what he said, really. 
You caught anything, boys? And they shouted back, no. Now, they were calling out over a distance of about 100 yards, and so you don't have a very detailed conversation at that distance. So they call back, no. And then he says, cast the net on the starboard on the right side of the ship, and you'll have a catch. And then they cast that net, and then suddenly that big tug indicating that it was loaded with fishes. And immediately, John, who is the spiritually sensitive person, says, it's the Lord. And then Peter, who is always the first to act, quickly puts his outer garment around him and casts himself into the, into the lake, and he makes for shore, swimming and wading, John may be the first to recognize Jesus, but Peter's going to be the first to get there. You remember on the day of the resurrection, John outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Here Peter outran John. <laughs> he got to shore, and he got there first with Jesus. And you remember when he got there, he saw an interesting thing. Jesus, Jesus had a fire going, and he had bread and fish there. Fish was the staple diet of the people. And uh, so Jesus had put some fish there and he had a fire going and he had bread there. And Peter comes ashore. They drag that big net loaded with 153 fishes. You can tell that these are real fishermen because they counted them. I can tell you the last time I went fishing with Bobby Richardson on the Santee Couple. We caught a hundred fish. I don't remember what the limit was, but that was, that was, that was how many we caught. Anyway, uh, we, we were, uh, they, they brought the fish and they counted them. They counted them uh, and, and there were 153. And they were large fish, we we're told. This is the language of, of fisher people. And so when they had finished, Jesus said, bring some of the fish you have caught. And they brought them there. And then Jesus fed them. That's my first point. He is feeding them. This is the prayer breakfast. He didn't start talking to Peter right away. He fed him first. I always give the little bit of advice to new wives to have supper ready when their husbands get home. It's hard to fight on a full stomach. <laughs> uh, it's always better if you feed someone. Uh, feed them first. Okay, Jesus feeds them. They have a prayer breakfast. They eat first. And then when they have finished eating, and there must have been a lot of memories when they looked into that fire that was blazing there. And you know how you look into a, a, a firelight and you can see all kinds of faces and things come back. And I'm sure that Peter could remember that night when he had warmed his hands by the fire in Caiaphas' courtyard and how he had denied his Lord three times. And then Jesus said to him, in a very formal way, almost like I would baptize someone, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now I wonder if he gestured to the rest of the disciples that were there. And if he was saying to Peter, once you boasted that you loved me more than everyone else loved me, 
Do you love me more than these love me? Or did he gesture to the boat and the net and say, do you love me more than you love this old way of life? I think it must have been, been that he was saying, do you love me more than the rest of the disciples love me? You boasted that you did. And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, a great many people have spent a lot of pages in explaining the difference between the word uh, in Greek, agapao, for uh, agape love, the kind of love that's in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the deepest 100% love, and phileo, which is sort of 60% love, the love between friends. But since they were talking in Aramaic, I don't see any sense in explaining that. Uh, so, <laughs> So he said, do you love me more than these? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Now here, from feeding the disciples, the prayer breakfast, we get to the forgiving part. And he is going to give Peter the opportunity, since he denied him three times, to affirm his faith in him three times. Do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes. And the Lord said, feed my lambs. Feed other people who might go astray, like a little lamb and need forgiveness. Feed them. Take care of them. That's important to do. This is why we call the minister of a church. He is a minister of God's word to teach it. He is a pastor. Uh, to teach people on a person-to-person -person basis, not only in a group, but on a one-to-one -one basis too. Feed my lamb. And then he said to him the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my sheep. He is to feed them. You are to be fed with the word of God. And fed not only in a group, but also individuals. I'm thankful for all of the wonderful Bible studies that we have. For this great class that Miss Wilson has taught, in which Donald Munson now teaches, and the many other classes in our Sunday school and church. Because we get fed on, a, on an individual basis, and then together, and then on a one-to-one -one basis. I grew up on a farm out in East Texas. And let me tell you something. If you go out to feed a group of little pigs, uh, you don't just take a bucket full of milk and sling it around. You can't feed them that way. You have to put it into something so they can get to it. And then sometimes they're so small that you've got to get them one by one and feed them with a bottle. If you were going to feed a sheep, you'd certainly have to do that because sheep are so dumb. Uh, <laughs> you'd have to feed them that way. Uh, and so we're, we're to be fed on a one-on-one -on -one basis and on a group basis too. Feed my sheep. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter then gives that tremendous affirmation. He says to him, Lord, thou knowest all things. You know everything there is to know. You know me through and through. You know I love you. Now, boy, that's tremendous. 
If Jesus walked up and down these aisles and looked you in the face eye to eye, could he say, do you love me? And could you say, Lord, you know all things. You can see right through me. You know I love you. Do you love him? That's the key to it. Well, Peter is restored now. He's forgiven. Three times he has told Jesus that he loves him and he is reinstated by the Lord Jesus at this point. Reinstated by love. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle of Christ. It's the greatest miracle because it's the one we need the most. It is the greatest miracle because it's the miracle that costs the most. He had to die on the cross to bring us forgiveness. And it's the greatest miracle because it accomplishes the most. It can restore us and make us what we ought to be. And now the foretelling. Jesus foretells what this restored disciple, apostle, will do. He said, when you were a young man, you went where you would. But when you're old, another will take you where you do not want to go. Another will gird you and take you where you don't want to go. And John tells us that he spoke this showing by what death Peter would glorify the Lord. Now Peter went all the way to Rome preaching the gospel. And it was in Rome that he was arrested. And the most reliable tradition tells us that it's in Rome that he was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, Peter was later girded up and made strong on that day of Pentecost, and next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, June the 6th. On that day of Pentecost, he amazed all of those high priests and all of those people in Jerusalem by standing out there and boldly preaching the greatest sermon of his life on Pentecost Sunday. And they were amazed at the boldness of Peter, his tremendous bravery, and so he fulfills his vow to Jesus and he fulfills what Jesus foretells about him. Later, he is stretched out on a cross and he dies for his Lord. It's a tremendous thing. What the Lord accomplished through this man's life, forgiveness accomplishes the most. I'll never forget a meeting of the Senate of Appalachia that occurred in the Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. Normally, one of the times that people do not pay as much attention as perhaps we should is during the necrology, during the time when they read the obituaries of people who have died, who have served in that synod back in the old days of that synod. I remember one time, though, when everyone perked up and listened because they started to read the obituary of a minister who had died only in his 56th or 7th year. But the interesting thing about this minister is that when they started reading the obituary, they read about how this man had gone to Atlanta, Georgia, how he had become a famous preacher and attracted great attention, and then he became an alcoholic and he brought disgrace upon Christ and disgrace upon the church and how the presbytery finally, the presbytery finally had to censure him and he had to demit the ministry with that censure upon him. 
years went by. God worked in his heart. He got him to Alcoholics Anonymous through the ministry of a young man by the name of Peter Marshall. His wife was a secretary who worked for Peter Marshall when Peter Marshall was at the Westminster Church in Atlanta. That man came back to Christ. He became reinstated and sober and proved his sobriety. And all of this was read to the Synod. And then he applied to the Atlanta Presbyterian, was reinstated as a minister of the gospel. And then he went to a church in Virginia where serving there, he had a great ministry, helping and assisting other people who had fallen and whose lives had been broken too. And he'd had a heart attack and died. He insisted on the whole story being read. Well, Peter's failure has been recorded for us so that we might know that all of us may not be six million dollar Christians, but all of us can know that the Lord Jesus has founded his church upon those like this man who are willing to give themselves as completely as they know how to give themselves to his lordship and that he works in their minds and hearts and lives to make them what they ought to be. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you can accept him this morning. You can do it publicly by coming forward here. You can do it privately in the secrecy of your own heart. You may speak with me after the church or with any of the elders of the church. We would be glad to talk with you about faith in Jesus Christ. And then your life is lived out for his glory. I love the way John brings it to a close with splendid hyperbole. Jesus did many other things, which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Now then, think a moment. Little boy asked me about this verse yesterday. But think about the little boys and the little girls and the men and women down through these 2,000 years who have believed in Jesus and all of the deeds of love and kindness and the works which they have done in his name and for his glory. And a book could be written about all of those deeds. And what John is telling us shows that 10,000 times 10,000 is not enough to tell the glories of our Lord or of those who yield to his lordship.